morning. So good to see everybody today. Glad y'all braved the weather to be here. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> While you're turning there, I want to let y'all know something. Um, this past week, we had a, a funeral service for a dear member of this church, Mr. Dwight Foster, and um, he was... Uh, heavily involved in the Christian oil field um, fellowship. I believe it's what it called. Um, he is heavily involved in that, just realizing that the oil field that he was called, that he was a part of was the mission field that he was called to. Um, many of his friends in that ministry were here at the service. One of them was John Bird, who is also heavily involved in it. He, he's not from here. He's from out of town. But when he came, he brought... Uh, a whole lot of material and bibles and information about that organization and so i know we have a lot of oil field workers in this church if you'd like to get one of those bibles those bibles are tailored for oil field uh, oil field ministry so if you're interested in that there is a case of those bibles in the welcome center out in the foyer so be sure to get one uh, if you're in that line of work and you want to find out more about that ministry you can find that out there too. So uh, just part of the, the legacy that he left behind and the work that continues to go out. It was a neat thing to be a part of. All right, Second Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start reading at verse 7. So let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord. Paul once again is writing and he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for the truth that we get to look at today. And Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see it for what it really is. Jesus, would you make yourself known through your word, through this message, God, that we may see you for who you truly are and be changed by it. Lord, show us what we have in you, that we may live from it, that others may know that you are real. In your name we pray, amen. I'm going to show you a series of pictures 
here to start this off that are um, really optical illusions. Uh, you'll see, some of you will see something in this picture and some of you may see something else. The first three are of one type and then there'll be three more that are another type. So this first one there, how many of you, you first see the uh, candelabra? Y'all see the white candelabra there? Okay. How many of you see two faces, silhouette of faces facing each other? That's usually what the majority see. Now this next one, I want you to just say out loud what you see first when the picture comes up. So what do you see? (laughs) Okay. Some of you said duck. Some of you said rabbit. How many of you who saw the duck can now see the rabbit? Y'all see it? How many of you who saw the rabbit can now see the duck? Right, they're both on there. Okay, this next one's a little bit more difficult, but what do you see there? A woman, old or young? How many of you see the old woman? How many of you see the young woman? All right. The young woman's a little bit harder to see for some people, but if you see the old lady... You see her nose there. Her nostril is a jawline of the young lady looking away. The old lady's eye is the young lady's ear. Hey, somebody brought a laser pointer. Thank you, RJ. Uh, The old lady's mouth is a young lady's necklace, and so she's looking away. See it now? All right. Now look at the the next three. It's just a simple face of a guy kind of smiling, but this picture, if you turn it upside down, See an older man with a beard and a mustache with the crinkly forehead, right? All right, show the next picture. You see a picture of a rabbit, but when you turn the rabbit upside down, it's a man with a long handlebar mustache and a long nose. And then this next one, an old lady, but if you turn it upside down, you see a young princess. Pretty neat, huh? These pictures illustrate what is called a paradox. And so if you're following along in your notes there in your bulletin, you'll see the definition of a paradox there, which is two things that seem contradictory but are both true. Two things that seem contradictory but are both true. It seems that if you draw a picture of a young woman, you wouldn't be able to draw a picture of an, an, an old woman. If you draw a young, you couldn't draw an old and vice versa. But then you just saw they're in the same picture. If you draw a picture of a rabbit, it would seem that you wouldn't be able to draw a picture of a duck at the same time. But we saw a while ago that those are both true. The gospel, like those pictures, is full of paradox. Jesus himself existed as a paradox in that he was both 100% God and 100% man, both at the same time. He often spoke of the paradoxes that exist in kingdom living, like when he said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake will find it. And then he displayed the ultimate paradox the absolute ultimate in paradox when he went to the cross. In your notes there, there's a list of blanks there. And what you're going to see are the paradoxes that we find in the cross of Jesus Christ. Probably the most glaring thing we see right off the bat is both the wrath of God and the love of God both existing at the same time in the same place. It was his wrath towards sin and his love towards us. 
Justice and mercy are two things that don't naturally go together. If someone commits a crime, they either receive justice, which would be in the form of the punishment that they deserve for what they did, or they would receive mercy. You really have to forego one in order to get the other. And so it would seem impossible to have both justice and mercy to exist and go to someone at the same time. Yet in the cross of Christ, that is exactly what took place. God is a God of justice, which means he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He is also a God of mercy. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. In order to be just, God has to punish our sin. If he didn't punish our sin, he would not be a just God. But to do that, he'd have to forego his mercy. For us to receive just mercy would mean that he would have to forego his justice. But through Jesus, he was able to do both. He took the punishment that we deserved, and so sin was paid for and justice was served. But because he stood in our place to take it, we received the mercy of God at the same time. In the cross, we also see both innocence and guilt existing in the same place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin." On our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So, really, you even have a double paradox in that the righteous Jesus becoming sin and the sinful us becoming righteous. The cross also displays the paradox of both ugliness and beauty. Jesus, grossly disfigured, covered in blood from head to toe straining with everything he had for every single ounce of breath was an incredibly ugly sight. It was gruesome. But at the very same time, it's also very beautiful because of the love of God that was displayed there and because of what that gruesome sight means for us. It makes something so horrific and gruesome be so absolutely beautiful. At the cross, at the very same time, you have shame being produced and shame being removed. When Romans invented crucifixion, they devised the ultimate display of public shame that anyone could possibly go through. The condemned person would hang there on that cross completely naked in front of everyone. And while they were hanging there, it was not just allowed but encouraged for people to come up to them while they were hanging in that embarrassing state and curse them, throw insults at them, mock them, spit on them. A more shameful thing could not have been invented. And because Jesus went through that, because he took on that shame, it meant the removal of ours. Because of the cross, we have comfort as a result of his affliction. Our acceptance because of his rejection. Our adoption by the Father because he was orphaned. Our freedom coming as a result of his captivity. Our healing coming from his wounds. 
and our life coming as a result of his death. The cross was the ultimate in paradox. In those pictures we looked at, we all saw it one way, but then after something was pointed out, you could see it another, or after the picture was turned upside down, you could see it for something completely other than what you first saw it as. The cross essentially was the same thing. The disciples originally first saw it as a horrific tragedy because their leader that they had been following around for three years and who had been promising these great things was dead. Everything that they had hoped for seemed to be gone. But after the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, they saw that as something altogether different. The religious leaders saw it as their victory and Jesus' defeat, but in reality, it was their defeat and Jesus' victory. The Romans saw it as just another troublemaker, like all the rest who died on that hill. But to the ones that Jesus chose to reveal himself to, they saw it as something completely different, something much greater. Jesus' resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit allowed the cross to be seen in a completely different light, to be turned upside down and seen for what it really was. As Christians, our lives are built on the foundation of the cross. And so if the cross is full of paradox, then there's no reason why we shouldn't expect our lives to be marked by paradox as well. This is exactly what Paul is talking about here in this text. Look at verse 7 again. He starts it all off with a paradox when he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. An earthen vessel is just a fancy way of saying clay pots, which he is referring to us as. We are the clay pots which are of no value at all, yet he says within those uh, worthless clay pots there is unspeakable treasure. Worthless clay pots and valuable treasure both come together in those who belong to Christ. And then he goes on to describe that treasure, and he does it by listing these different paradoxes that we are identified as. These paradoxes is, is what he says is our treasure. But before he does that, he tells us why God even operates this way, why he uses paradox in, in the things that he does. And he says, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. God works like this because he is the only one who can make two opposite things, two things that wouldn't naturally go together. He's the only one who can make them go together who can make them both be true at the same time. No human has the ability to do that, so all credit and glory has to go to him. Apparently, this was something that Paul really wanted his readers to understand because this is not the first time the Christians in Corinth heard this. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he illustrates the same thing. Turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 27, he says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame 
the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Foolish things shame in the wise, weak things shame in the strong, things that are not nullifying things that are. These are paradoxes that God uses in order to keep us from boasting in anything so that all boasting will be directed to God. All right, back to the text in 2 Corinthians 4. Let's look at these other paradoxes that he describes in the life of a Christian that he says is our treasure. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. The word that Paul used there for afflicted was a Greek word that was used to describe grapes being pressed into wine. And so a more accurate translation would be, we are pressed, but not crushed. You ever feel pressed by life? Of course, we all do. But no matter how hard that pressing gets... If you belong to Jesus, he will not allow you to be pressed to the point where you are absolutely crushed. The paradox there is, how can you press so hard on a grape without crushing it? A grape is a fragile thing. It doesn't take much to crush a grape. Our lives are fragile as well, and so he's using that analogy to describe what our life is like in Christ. The things in this world may press in on us more than we think that we can bear, but only in Jesus can we be pressed so hard without being absolutely crushed. And then he says that we are perplexed but not despairing. Listen to the definition of the the word Paul used for perplexed. It means to be completely without resources, to be in straits, to be left wanting to the point of being embarrassed in doubt, not to know which way to turn, to be at a complete loss with one's self. Now, normally in some, someone in that situation would be without any hope at all. But only in Jesus can we be that destitute and still have hope. That means that no matter how bad things may be, we know that there is more going on than what we can only see with our eyes. We know that no matter how bad it looks right now, that we've got the promise of God's word, that he is working it all out for our good and his glory. We know that as bad as the loss appears to be, as much as I may be without any resources, I have the promise in his word that God will provide all of my needs according to his riches and glory. We can be absolutely destitute, but not without hope, because we know that we belong to a father who will never leave us and never forsake us. Verse 9 and 10, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. This essentially echoes what Jesus said and what he was talking about in John 16, 33, where he said, In this world you will have trouble, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. 
Even though we belong to Jesus, you and I still live in a broken world where a real battle rages all around us. And it would be foolish for us to assume that just because we are Christians, we are immune from all that brokenness. We are immune from any casualties of that spiritual battle that rages. Jesus did not promise us that he would keep us from that. In, the, in that verse, he didn't say, I hope you don't have trouble. He didn't say you might have trouble. He didn't say you'll avoid all the trouble if you'll just do this, this, and this. No, he comes right out and directly says, you're going to have trouble. There's no avoiding it. You're going to have it. He also said that to his disciples before this that a servant is not above his master. And so that means that if our master, when he was in this world, suffered the way that he did, then we can expect to experience some suffering too because a servant is not above his master. That's what Paul meant with the phrase carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus But no matter how much we suffer, no matter how difficult the hardships may be that we face, no matter how hard we are pressed, persecuted, or struck down, none of that will affect in the least bit who we are, what we have in Christ. Knowing that should empower us to live in such a way that that those struggles don't affect us the way they do others, the way that they do those who don't have Jesus. This is why Paul is saying that this gives glory to God. How else could someone go through such difficult things and still be exuding joy? It can only be because of God, because that can only happen supernaturally, because it darn sure doesn't happen naturally. If we really know what it means to be in Christ, our lives should be lived as one big paradox. What I mean is that when it seems as though we have lost everything, others see that we still have hope. When life is pressing us down, we still have joy. When others persecute us, we don't do what the rest of the world does and get back and get revenge. No, we forgive and we bless. When everything around us looks so bad, we can stand in the middle of it and declare that God is so good. That is a paradoxical life where our circumstances don't match our attitude and our countenance. No one can live like that apart from knowing what it means to be saved and apart from being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Those who don't have that, who don't have Jesus, when they lose all their resources, they pretty much lose all their hope. When they get pressed, they get crushed. When they get persecuted, they get back. When things around them are bad, their attitude is generally going to match it. There are no paradoxes there. But God has provided for us a higher way of living. A higher way of living for those who belong to him. Jump down to verse 16. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. It's another paradox. On the outside, it looks like to our bodies that things are just getting worse and worse. But looks can be deceiving. 
Because for those who are in Christ, on the inside, the part of us that really matters is just getting better and better. You see, when God unconditionally chooses us and saves us by his grace, he sets into motion the unstoppable process, the unstoppable process of molding us more and more into the image of his son and making us look more glorious in his sight. And nothing in this world can stop that process from being completed. Nothing. That is going on in you right now. As your body begins to break down and decay, as things around you look like they are falling apart, even in your whole world, your inner man, your spirit is being renewed and molded more and more into the image of Jesus to the point where he who began a good work in you will complete it. It will be completed. Verse 17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now for Paul, of all people, to refer to his struggles as light and momentary affliction is just staggering. Talk about a paradox. And this is coming from a man who was stoned with rocks and left for dead. Thought that they had accomplished what they set out to do, but he was still alive. He was shipwrecked, not once, not twice, but three different times. He was beaten with rods on several occasions, whipped, imprisoned, and I don't know exactly what it means, but he says in 2 Corinthians 11, a night and a day I spent in the deep. Sounds creepy. I don't know what that means, but I don't think I want to spend a night and a day in the deep. Somehow Paul did. And yet he calls all that light and momentary afflictions. What? Why? How can he see that as that? Because in his mind he was focused more on things that matter than things that don't. He was focused more on eternity than he was things in this world. And he's know, he knows that that's exactly what they are compared to what he has in Christ now and compared to what will be revealed to us in the future. Think about this for a minute. How many of you, if you're not teenagers anymore, can remember while you were a teenager going through some painful, difficult situation. Let's say the breakup of a boyfriend or girlfriend. Anybody go through that when you were a teenager? It's okay to admit it now. And when you go through a breakup with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, man, it feels like your entire world is falling apart. You can't eat. You can't sleep. You can't concentrate on school. At least that's what I hear. No, I went through it too. It stinks, man. I mean, really, to a teenager, that is so painful. And there's no, it's reality. It, it, It is one of the worst things you can seem to go through. But nearly 30 years now, removed from that, I look back on that, which just seemed like the worst thing that could possibly happen. It was so painful. 30 years almost later, I'm like, really? That was so silly. 
I mean, it's, it, it's nothing. If just 30 years from that makes it look so small, think about whatever hardship you may be going through right now. What's that going to look like 50 years from now? What's it going to look like 500 years from now? What's it going to look like 5,000 years from now? Where you will have spent maybe, what, 75, 80 years here, but then 5,000 years in absolute perfection. You think those troubles you're having now are going to look that big? No. Not at all. Folks, this life that we live on this side of eternity, it's just a blink of an eye. It's just a snap of a finger compared to what we have on the other side. And put, putting things in the right perspective allows us to see them for what they are. You know what things are going to look like 5,000 years from now? Light and momentary afflictions if we even think about them at all. Putting things here in the right perspective is like turning those pictures upside down. And you can see it for what it really is. You've heard me say this before, but I really can't say it enough because we've got to get this, and that is that trust is the absolute highest level you can attain in any relationship. Some people say, oh, I thought it was love. Well, love is great, but you can love someone and not fully trust them. To be able to fully trust somebody else is what I believe the most absolutely freeing thing you can experience in a relationship. You know, most struggles that couples have in their marriage really stem from the fact that the bottom line is they just don't trust one another. Of course, they love each other, but there's some trust issues there. And I don't mean trust them with that they're cheating or anything like that. It's trusting each other just with your heart, with your emotions, trusting the leadership of your husband, trusting the intentions of your wife. God wants nothing more than for us to be able to fully trust him, to trust him. And that trust should be based on the fact that the cross was the ultimate paradox. All was not as it seemed. Your life in Christ is built on that foundation, that same foundation where all was not as it appeared to be. Some of you may be looking at a situation right now, and from your perspective here, you can look at it and say, that's not fair, that's not right, that's scary, it's painful, Lord wants you to know this morning that because you belong to him and your life is built on the foundation of the cross, all is not as it seems. All is not as it seems.
you have a good, good father who is working behind the scenes in that. And he's working every bit of that out for your good and his glory. He wants you to trust him with that. So here's what God really kind of hit me between the eyes with this week. Be careful about what you may be cursing, whatever situation that you may be cursing. It's more than likely you're cursing the hand of God at work in your life. You can't see it now, but what he's working right now that you're so in a twist about, pretty soon you're going to look back on that and go, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Forgive me for not trusting you that you had my best in mind when you were doing that. Forgive me for making you so small and not trusting you in my life, but I see it now. And so God just asks us to trust him. And if you can, your attitude won't be controlled by your situation. It'll be based on the fact that all is not as it seems. Your life will be a paradox because the world will look at that and go, wait a minute, isn't this going on with them right now? If that's going on, how come they're so joyful? How come they're so confident? How come they're so at peace? Because we are allowed to see things that others aren't. Because we have the Holy Spirit in it. We are in the know on something that others aren't. We know that all is not as it appears to be. God's working all things out in your life. And he wants you to trust him. Just trust him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a good, good father and that we can trust you. Lord, there's not one thing in all of eternity that you have done that would say in any way that you can't be trusted. You have proven over and over and over again that you can be. That no good thing do you withhold from those who love you. Lord, I pray for those that are in the midst of a difficult situation right now. And Lord, it's okay to call it what it is. We understand that. It may be scary. It may not look like it's fair or right. Lord, I pray that right now they would just rest in the fact that all is not as it seems. That there's more at work here because they belong to you. God, I pray that they just be able to rest and trust in you in that. Lord, that their attitude will not be controlled by their circumstance any longer. They will not allow the enemy to use this situation to rob them of the treasures and the joy that is theirs in you. Lord, even in the midst of those who are in difficulty and not understanding what's going on right now, I pray that in the middle of the deepest pain, you would restore unto them the joy of their salvation. 
knowing what it means to belong to you, even in the midst of such difficulty. Holy Spirit, I know that there are those in here that you are just speaking directly to, that this message was tailor-made for by you. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the truth and be changed by it. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't belong to you, but Lord, you are drawing them to yourself right now, I pray that they would come to a place of repentance, turning from the life that they've been living, thinking that they were in control of it, and they would turn to you, and in doing so, turning away from everything that is not of you. Lord, I pray for for the salvation of someone's soul that we get to experience and share in again this morning. Lord, I know there's things that you want to do in people's hearts right now, so we ask you to do it. We just lay our hearts open to you and ask you to have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.